if you want. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. No? Do you want me to shout it? Romans 1, 16 to 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his indivisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, and to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind in order to do, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I speak like this, can everyone hear me? Yeah, is that okay? Because I won't use the microphone if I don't need to. <clears throat> well, Rob used the um, illustration of chocolate mud cake last week. Chocolate mud cake is good to eat, but it takes a lot of getting through. Over the next three weeks, over these next three talks, they are fairly heavy. Heavy in terms of what you're reading, but also heavy in terms of the implication for ourselves. So I do uh, sort of uh, encourage you to keep coming along, even though you might think, oh, this is so hard. Uh, keep sort of uh, biting in and savouring every bite because uh, they are worth it in the end. I'm going to pray in a minute, but first... Yeah, first slide up. How do you people, uh, just with the person next to you, how do people in society... Or how do people you know who perhaps uh, wouldn't call themselves Christians, perhaps you're like that here today, and we welcome you. How do people generally view the moral changes in society over the last 50 years? Okay, just put the person next to you, quickly. <laughs> Sorry. 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 
seek to live in obedience of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Euthanasia. (laughs) Assisted suicide, that is. Late-term abortion. Gay marriage. Transgenderism. No-fault divorce. Sexual freedom. If you think about it, the last 50 years have been astonishing in the West. The shift or the change in the moral and ethical landscape is astonishing. The speed of change, of direction, are astonishing. Standing talking to some students during O Week, I guess I should have known, but many of them said the changes witnessed in the last sort of 50 years or so, it's clear, is progress. A product of the evolutionary process, as it were. Progress to a more acceptance in society for individual rights. Moving away from the outdated norms of the old generation. The outdated norms of the church, or the Bible, or of tradition. We don't need God. He's simply an explanation of something we don't know yet. Within two generations, morality, that is what we consider to be right and wrong, has shifted beyond recognition. Do you consider it as progress, as evolving in the right direction? What do you make of the shifts? Is man becoming more enlightened? Is what you see good news or bad? Because certainly in the media, many of these things are good news. In the passage that we just had read by Ben, we're in for a shock. Because if you're a believer in humanism's catch cry of progress without God, this may be one of the most outrageous and politically incorrect commentaries of our day, what we're about to read. Rather than what we see around us as progress, it is in fact an unmitigated disaster. Take a look at verse 18. The wrath of God, for the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, something which is happening now, and God's perspective of our world is quite different to the way our society views it. And what we see around us is the outcome of God's anger, not progress, but of anger. And that's the main point today. God's anger is being revealed. This is the big problem 
that we all face. Our world, our people, we all are under the wrath of God. Now, if you've been with us the last two weeks, we started looking at Romans chapter 1. Rob did. And uh, what this letter is about is really Paul writing to the Romans, and he wants them to remind them of the truths they know, of these gospel truths. The important news, the gospel, is God's important big news, hectic news, momentous news, news of God's salvation, news of God's rescue, and how they can live now by faith, in the obedience of faith. That's what he said, isn't it? Verse 16, take a look. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. But, saved from what? What are we being saved from in the gospel of Jesus? Of course, if you think the main problem in our world is injustice, well, you will fight for social justice. What will salvation look like for you? It would look like justice, wouldn't it? If you think climate change is the greatest problem in our world, then what will salvation look like for you? Well, he spells out the greatest problem. In verse 18, he starts for, because. Because he's going to explain why we need saving. It's causal. The reason why salvation is found in Jesus Christ and no one else is, because, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all God, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's our first point today, the great problem. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now most of us might think that God's punishment is reserved for some time in the future. And that's certainly true because we'll look at that next week. But he's not talking about that here. No, he's talking about now. What's happening now? What is the reality about what is happening around us? And it's very different to secular society's view of itself, isn't it? Now, to understand this, we've got three questions. Firstly, the why. Why is God's wrath being revealed now? Secondly, who is it being revealed about or who on? Who is the wrath being revealed against? And thirdly, how? How is God's wrath being displayed? Firstly, the why. That's verse 18. Uh, we might expect that God would be angry with what we see in our world. And he is. He was angry at what he saw last Friday. Absolutely outraged at what's going on in the Middle East, in, in what was going on in Syria. God must be angry at the treatment of the refugees. But with a bit of a surprise, it's not those things that are on view, actually, in verse 18. Verse 18 says it's because man has suppressed the truth. What does that mean? Well, it means... You keep pushing away God. You keep pushing away the truth about God. Keep, keeping it at arm's length. I don't know if you did it as a child. I have no idea what Australians did as a child. But when I got the opportunity to uh, uh, be in a pool, which is not very often in England, to be honest with you, because it's too cold. But when it is, right, um, I usually used to take a beach ball and I tried to, I don't know if you did, you try to push it down. And you try to, you know, sit on it and you think, I can keep it down, I can keep it down. And you could never keep it down. You could never push it away. And that's what we do to God. 
We don't want to know. And we suppress. Verse 19 and 20 go on and tell us what that truth is. Look, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There are things about God that were known in creation, that are known in creation, enough to understand who he is and what he's like. I can tell you about an Australian photographer called Ken Duncan. Anyone heard of him? Good. You probably would have uh, heard of him because your parents have got a coffee, coffee table book of, of uh, panographs sitting on the, on the, on the, on the, on the table. Um, his story is interesting because he wasn't a Christian. And it, as he sat and he photographed the beautiful great southern land, he started asking the question of how it all got here. He, he, those questions led him to, to a living faith in God. How could this be random? This can't be an accident. Such was the beauty and order in creation. And of course, if you're a scientist, uh, if you know the odds of life happening on the world, it's astronomical. Um, it's not just that, is it? We like the idea of justice, don't we? Don't you like the idea of justice in our world? It's ironic since we like the idea of justice, but we don't like the idea of a just God, do we? No. We like the idea of justice and we like the idea of love. We like the idea of peace. We know the sort of movies and books which bring tears to our eyes, yes, even people like me, when justice is done, when love remains. Imagine a world without justice. Imagine a world without love. Friends, that's God's nature imprinted on us from the very beginning of creation, created in his image. And what about conscience? That is the ability to choose what is right and wrong or how to act. What about, what does it mean to be personal? Are these are the results of chance as well. God's fingerprints are everywhere. Now we could go into all of that much more, but that's actually not his point. Thankfully, I didn't have to go and find out the astronomical odds of life sort of existing on the world because it would have confused you and it would have confused me. Paul is making a point that we suppress whatever truth we've got. We suppress the evidence. Look at what he says in verse 21. He explains what that suppression is. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, when we dishonour God, when we don't give him the honour as God, well, it shows that our thinking has literally gone to pot. Futile means nothing, empty. It goes nowhere. Our thinking goes so hey, hey, haywire, we fail to acknowledge that he is God. Now imagine you say that to your lecturer after a lecture one day, an unbelieving lecturer who doesn't believe in God, and you say to him, your thinking is futile. Wouldn't go down very well, would it? But that's the reality for us all. And our control centre is corrupted. That's what the heart is. Do you notice he says the foolish hearts was darkened? It's like our main motherboard. Illustration for the IT people. But it's like our main motherboard has been corrupted. Uh, it's it, it sort of, uh, it, the motherboard enables us to think and act and feel. That's what the heart is. It's the seat of your thinking. It's the seat of your deciding and it's the seat, sorry, the seat of your emotions or desires. 
what we think, the decisions we make, uh, what we feel, what we desire. Wisdom without God is really on view that we claim to be wise. Verse 22. Claim to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, twice Paul makes the point that foolish thinking results in an exchange. Look at verse 25. Say halfway in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator, richer rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, the great exchange that humanity makes is simply moving from worship of one thing, that is God, setting aside him, to the honour of something else, which is not God, something that God made. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem very clever to me, even though we claim to be. Now, as I was preparing this, the question I was asking was, who are these people? Who's Paul talking about? Are they talking about all mankind? Are they talking about the Gentiles, who were all the nations, and maybe not the Jews? Am I to include myself in here? Are you included in all this? How do you know? Well, I think my mind has changed over the last couple of months thinking about this. Look with me at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they knew him. Look at verse 23 with me. What did man exchange the glory of God for? Animals, birds and reptiles, including snakes. Categories of created things, including those things. Verse 32, what does it say? Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die... When did man know God's righteous decree? These were the sort of questions that I had as I was preparing. And look at verse 25. What does he say? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Although when I went and looked at the original, it can be translated, the lie. What's he talking about? Does it ring any bell? <coughs> I think Romans 1 resonates with the language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I think we've got it coming up on the next slide. Don't worry about all the details. Just absorb it for a second. I think it resonates with the language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's describing mankind within the created order. They knew God in the garden. They knew his righteous decree. They listened to the lie of the serpent. And they exchanged God for that lie by listening to him, serving him rather than... But does that somehow excuse us? Because we're reading it and we go, okay, that was a bad one back then. Does it excuse you and I? Well, no. Because this is not just about Adam and Eve and their failure. Paul is going to argue later on that Adam is like our federal head. It's like he represents us in chapter 5. He's the point of origin of us all. That we all are in solidarity with that one man. And we are implicated with him. We are guilty like him. We sin like him. And we all reject the truth 
for the lie that life is better ignoring his right to rule. Are we excused? No, of course not. In fact, before I became a Christian, I remember I would do my best to keep Christians away from me. I didn't want to know them. Why? Because they were always talking to me about God. And I had no interest whatsoever in knowing him. Suppressing. Perhaps those who want to make an excuse, or those who try and prove that God doesn't exist. What are they doing? Well, they're actually just keeping God at arm's length. They're trying to push him down. It's like a beach ball, isn't it? But even as Christians, I think we do it. When you read something in God's word, for example, you know, it might tell you who you should marry or maybe not to marry an unbeliever or whatever it is, or perhaps the idea of God's sovereign election or choice. What do you feel? You sometimes feel repulsion. And you think, I don't want to think about it. I'm going to push it down. No, we all do this. What we see around us is what we have in ourselves, that we all suppress the truth about God, naturally, in our own state. <coughs> and instead of living life for God, what do we do? We actually live our lives for what God has created. We live in servitude of his creation. And in the Bible, it's called idolatry. I remember I moved to Singapore in 1996 and uh, to be an engineer there. And there was a little shop in one of the streets. And um, it was called something, something, idol shop. And these wooden, wooden carvings, little idols. And I was blown away because coming from Britain, I didn't know that existed anymore. Um, but it was amazing. I don't think he's talking about necessarily, that, that, may, that may be the case for some. But actually, idolatry can come in many forms, isn't it? In our Western world, 150 years ago, it was the dream of happiness, utilitarian happiness, wasn't it? And so you went through the modern period where you had systems and political systems that tried to implement this whole philosophical movement. And when it was clear that that failed, which it did in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, we moved into the postmodern period where self-determination, self-identity, creating your own kids, identity is king now. It's different in Asia, though. Much of the time, money is the king. Success, esteem, is the king. Get the decree and the reputable firm, and you've made it. That's why the prosperity gospel flourishes. It's idolatry. For others, we might not have had a great family life, and so our goal in life is to have relationships that are fulfilling, intimate, ordered, and happy. Not that happiness, success, relationships are wrong in themselves. What idolatry is, is the misplaced priority they have in your life. Do you get the difference? Do you live for those things? Do they fill your horizons? And if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, well good, because God detests idolatry. Our initial thought when we get up each morning is not, ah, let me worship God today. It's let me get on with my own life. 
All of it is because we don't want to know God. We, don't want, to, we want to live the truth about God. We want to go our own way, and that is why God is angry. We don't like the idea of God being angry. We would rather much have him as the white-haired grandpa, grump, grandpa who just gives us all the nice things we need to be loving and kind when we need them most. Well, he is loving and kind, as we shall see. But if you really care for someone and something, justice needs to be served when a wrong is done. That's the way God is. He is angry because he loves the world. Well, lastly, how? How do we see his anger shown? How is God's wrath being revealed? Well, three times Paul tells us, verse 24, take a look. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How is God's anger being shown now? We know the why, we know who he's talking about, but how? Well, it's in the giving up of ourselves to our own passions and desires. He hands us over to our futile minds and our darkened hearts. We think we're wise, remember. We can think we can do it without God. And so in his anger, yeah, God hands us over to what we desire. Oh, sometimes it happens when, if you're a parent, I don't know, maybe you were a child and your parents were telling you something, don't do something, don't do something, don't do something, and you were determined to do it. And sometimes as a parent, it's hard to know when to restrain and when to let someone go, especially with ice creams. If you jump around with that ice cream, it's going to fall on the floor. <coughs> if you jump around, you're going to fall on the floor. If you run on that wet granite or marble, you're going to slip over and bang your head. How many times did we end up in the emergency ward when my son would not listen? How, when do you restrain and when do you let someone go? When do you love and when do you, sometimes out of anger you let them go? And that's exactly what God has done. You don't want to know me? Well, there you go. He takes the brakes off. He takes the restraints away and leaves us to do what we want, what we desire. See, the crimes that we see around us are the punishment for the crime. And what do we have now? Well, we see what happened on Friday. Life becomes about me, what I feel. Truth is extinguished for personal satisfaction, for self-determination. I do what I want. In verse 24 and 26, well, where does Paul go? He, the emphasis falls on the life of sexual impurity. How the natural created order of relationships are distorted. Women burn for passion for women and men for men. Now, careful here, I don't think he's necessarily picking on homosexuality, particularly because it's worse than all the other sins. That's not what he's doing there. Because he has a long list of other sins in verse 28, which we'll get to in a minute. No, he's not picking on that particularly but he does highlight it, I think, because one of the foundations of the created order, do you remember if I'm saying that it's about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, one of the foundations of the created order is being turned upside down. The right and proper created order of sexuality and relationships are turned on their head. 
The right and proper order of sexuality and relationships are fundamental to the command that God gave in Genesis 1. Go have dominion, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Same sex is a distortion, sorry, same sex sex is a distortion of that natural order. So mankind's suppression of the truth about God and the resulting distortion of our darkened minds and our, our foolish minds and darkened hearts ends up with creation being turned upside down. And no, he's not just striking out at homosexuality or lesbianism. He's showing how all our desires have been distorted when our minds are darkened, rejecting God. Read the list again, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, <coughs> foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a list that our moral conscience would probably resonate with. Murder is evil, yes. No one likes being lied to. You're right. When someone gets above themselves, we like to cut them down. And we might look at all those wrongdoers and say, yeah, we could do without those things. This is what God should make angry. So, should make God angry. But of course, they do make God angry, but he's not saying that. It's actually the result or the consequence of life without God. It's the anger of God being revealed. It's the result of being handed over to our darkened mind. So-called freedom that we think we have ends up looking like this. We're not as bad as we could be, but we're all implicated in that list. People think in the streets think these things matter. Murder, insolence, pride. But one thing we don't think matters is suppressing the truth about God. People in the street think failing to love each other matters the most. But the first command to love God first. Uh, who cares? And verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, the, the world stops realising that wrong is wrong. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Growing calls for legislating euthanasia. New York State in, in, in America approving late-term abortion. How can we? It's, a, it's outrageous. But it's no surprise in a world that has been handed over to live without God. Friends, I, I think the right response is to mourn for our world. Mourn for a world that is handed over that shows God is angry. There is no progress here. What we see is awful news. Now, if you would not call yourself a believer here today, please do take heed. What we see around us is not progress. It's the display of God who is angry. There'll be an accounting for the wrong of rejecting him and living as though he doesn't matter. But more about that next week. We sometimes ask, do you want the bad news first or the good news? Well, what we've heard today is pretty depressing, isn't it? But Paul has already given us the good news. Do you remember? Verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the 
power of God for salvation for all who believe. See, salvation from that wrath is possible through the good news of Jesus the King. If you haven't yet put your trust in him, please do that. Because God's wrath is going to be finally revealed. The good news, Jesus the King, our Saviour and Lord. And if we're Christians, we know we need to be thankful for that gospel we believe, isn't it? Think about it. What have you been rescued from? Be thankful for the gospel. Trust the gospel. Be not ashamed of the gospel. Live lives for that gospel in the obedience of faith. And think about it. What is the solution for our world? It is being revealed under the wrath of God. It is the gospel. Keep your vision global in the world around you, not just here at uni, but in the wider world. We know what life without God looks like, so it gives us a hint of what the saved life will look like. But more about that in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for revealing yourself to us. And even though it's a revelation which is uncomfortable, a revelation in which we all are implicated because of our foolish minds and darkened hearts, that you have given us salvation. Father, we rejoice in that. And we pray that as we understand that more, we might learn to live the life of faith, the obedience of faith, which comes from knowing the truth. Father, in this world in which it's very dark, we pray that we might be shining lights in both how we're living and in what we're speaking, in our classmates, in our families, and in our wider friends and community. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.